When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting. We plan to take you into some of our favorite bird covers as we talk to the people that hunt them and the organizations that support them. We'll also break down the dogs, guns, and gear used to pursue them, and of course, we'll share the stories that celebrate this American tradition. It's one of those things that you do that, that feels timeless. My dad brought home our first Brittany when I was about 10 years old. The Red Gods are calling, and I must go. These are your stories. This is the Project Dublin Podcast, presented by Onyx Hunt. On this episode of the show, Del Whitman of DC Whitman Custom Gunsmithing joined us on Instagram Live. Welcome back to the show for episode number 101. Project Upland Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Use the promo code PUP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription today. And by Yukonuba Sporting Dog, makers of premium performance dog food that is scientifically formulated for peak nutritional performance for our canine athletes. Whether they are hunting, training in the off-season, or competing hard, Yukonuba gives them the nutrition they need to maintain that peak level of performance year-round. 
and by CZ USA Shotguns. Shotguns designed with the Upland Hunter in mind, from the Bob White Sharp Tail Side-by-Sides to the Upland Ultralight Wing Shooter Elite Over and Unders, CZ has a shotgun for you. If you're in the market for your next bird gun, head over to cz-usa.com. And by Dakota 283 Kennels. Kennels built to last a lifetime. One-piece rotomold design, frame steel door, everything you and your dog need for a safe and successful hunting trip. Head over to dakota283.com to learn more today. All right, this week's winner of the podcast giveaway is Ruben M. Ruben left us a review in the iTunes podcast app. Thank you, Ruben. Project Upland t-shirt headed your way very soon. Anybody listening could be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway. All you got to do is make a meaningful contribution to the show. You can leave us a rating, leave us a review like Ruben did. We love those. Subscribe to the podcast, share the podcast, send us a feedback or a guest suggestion. We'd love to hear from our listeners. You can email me at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com. All right, one quick announcement before we jump into today's show. I want to call your attention to a little partnership between myself, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, and Pike Gear. We put together a little fundraising opportunity for BHA, where myself, along with the chairman of the Minnesota BHA chapter, Matt Lee, agreed to take two people out grouse hunting this fall, which I don't know how excited people get about that, but I do know that the opportunity to go hunting with your brand new wingman upland strap vest from Pike Gear is pretty dang exciting which Pike Gear generously threw into the deal. So to recap, that is a grouse hunt for two people with myself and Minnesota BHA chairman Matt Lee in Minnesota this fall, and the selected winner will have a brand new Pike Gear wingman vest. You can enter to win via the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers website. 20 bucks gets you a chance to win a day of grouse hunting and a Pike Gear wingman vest. Head over to backcountryhunters.org or click the link that I will drop in the show notes for today's episode of the Project Upland podcast. Support a good cause, do it for BHA, and Matt and I will take you grouse hunting just for fun, and Pike Gear is going to outfit you with a brand new vest. Check it out and enter to win. All right, we're back to our regularly scheduled podcast programming this week after we took a look back at some of our episodes from the first 99 shows during episode 100 last week. Hope you enjoyed that one. Today, we are bringing you a conversation that I had with Del Whitman of DC Whitman Custom Gunsmithing via Instagram Live back in April. We recorded this a couple of weeks ago. We talked double guns, shotguns, as always. We answered listener questions on the air. If you missed it there, you can hear it now. As always, Dell is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to shotguns, which are something that most of us upland bird hunters take pretty seriously. And even if you don't, Dell's got a few tips and tricks to help you take better care of the shotguns that you do have. So with that said, let's jump into it and welcome into the conversation and on to the Project Upland podcast, Dell Whitman. There he is. There he is. How's it going, Dell? Not bad. How are you? I'm doing well. It's Friday afternoon. It is. <laughs> Friday in the gun shop. How's how's the quarantine life going for you over there in the gun shop? It's it's not bad. You know, not a lot of my day to day schedule has changed because I'm the only guy in the shop, and it's 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 pretty similar in that respect. My wife is um, my wife was working remote two days a week anyway, and now she's working full time remote. And of course, my daughter's home all day every day so that makes productivity a little tough but um you know i'm i'm actually trying to work in the evenings a little bit more and um you know 
just kind of working more of a swing shift type schedule. So, but it's going good. So yeah, there's yeah. a, there's a few suppliers and outworkers that are shut down, which are making things a little difficult, but, um, all in all, not too bad. So, yeah, same story over here. There's definitely some, some added wrinkles and stuff, but generally speaking, uh, I think my wife and I are both pretty fortunate to be, you know, we work from home. So the, impacts on daily life has been somewhat minimal compared to a lot of people that i know and talk to obviously so that's a good thing it's interesting any other um i mean you haven't had trouble like getting supplies or anything that you needed for your business or anything like that there were a few little things you know i mean i being as remote as i am i kind of keep a stock of a few things um you know especially the really um expendable stuff uh like you know, stock finish in sandpaper and that sort of thing. Um, then again, too, you know, a lot of the stuff I use is, is kind of industrial type stuff. So a lot of that is, you know, deemed essential. So they're still shipping a lot of that stuff. Um, you know, and as far as dealing with, with customers and that sort of thing, as long as, you know, the FedEx and UPS trucks are running, I'm, I'm in good shape. So, yeah. Well, before we get too far ahead of ourselves, I think we should, uh, I would like to welcome everybody to this live edition of the Project Upland Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt. We are joined by a former guest of the Project Upland Podcast. You've been on a couple times, Del. Uh, Del Whitman of DC Whitman Custom Gunsmithing, located over there in the northwest corner of lower Michigan. Del, tell us a little bit about your gunsmithing operation and what keeps you busy on a daily basis before we dive into some questions and have some fun today. Yeah. I mean, I, I have a pretty universal shop, but I do a lot of repair, um, restoration, um, custom part making for vintage guns. Um, I also do gun fitting, uh, quite a lot of stock alterations and, uh, custom stock making. And like I said, I, uh, a lot of these vintage guns, obviously you can't get parts for, so they have to be machine from scratch or you know filed up from scratch so i do quite a bit of that try to do as much as i can in-house so i do engraving as well as necessary for restoration you haven't had to uh i i've been i've been over to your shop we did a gun fitting there last summer and i was there again this spring doing looking at some some features of uh of a gun that you have you actually have and you're doing some work on um you're pretty well set up for i would say this current state of the world that we're in you haven't had to you haven't had to take take uh take any of your chickens out yet have you no no i've got <laughs> pigeons too they'd probably be the first to go yeah i think we're a little ways from that yet but you know some sometimes you gotta eat some livestock i guess occasionally yeah. so <laughs> i guess before we transition away from like current events state of the world have have you has your business have you seen any other unique requests by customers or any other influences based on what we're going through right now? Has that got people turning their wheels on different things gun-related or anything? You and I were chatting about gun markets a little bit earlier this week. I mean, sure. anything like that? Shoot, we might have lost Dell. Oh, there you are. I'm sorry. Yeah, say that again, Nick. I lost a little bit of that. Okay, yeah, we were we were stuttering there, but... I was just curious if if you have seen any other influences on your business or requests from customers having to do with the current state of the world and coronavirus and everything. Because you and I were chatting about gun markets earlier this week, so I'm just kind of curious if anything sort of dovetails off that conversation. Not really. You know, I don't deal with a lot of modern guns, so you yeah. know some of the issues with uh, you know a lot of 
escalated gun buying as it relates to that. I don't see a lot of that. Um, I have had to obviously make some changes. Um, you know, some of my clients have kind of changed the program on some of their projects because, you know, like for instance, Turnbull's shop, Doug Turnbull's shop is shut down. And that's who for many years I've sent all my case color hardening to because they do such a good job. And, you know, so there's kind of a few turns I've had to make with that sort of thing. But other than that, not, not too much. So that's uh, an interesting mention there of Doug Turnbull, Turnbull Restoration. I haven't had a chance to talk to Doug yet, but they are a current sponsor of the Project Upland podcast. So the fact that you bring them up kind of strikes my curiosity a little bit. Can you talk about Turnbull and some of the stuff that they do and and some of the reasons why you maybe turn to Turnbull Restoration? Because I've only heard good things about them. Yeah, yeah. I've known Doug for a long time. I haven't seen him in many years, but we used to hang out a little bit at some of the big shows and in uh, Reno and Vegas. And, you know, they have a full custom restoration shop. They have their own line of several different guns. They do a lot with um, period correct restorations on American stuff. Uh, Doug kind of makes some of his own um, style lever guns. You know, um, they do a really good job with a lot of that stuff. What I use them for primarily is color case hardening. And um, I've used them for years and just found them to be the most reliable pretty much the most reliable practitioners of that in the country. Um, and they, they can also do period correct colors. So, you know, if I'm restoring a, a, a fox per se, the color case has to look a lot different than if I was restoring a Holland and Holland that needs to look like it came out of St. Ledger's, you know, um, and, and they can do that and they do it real well. I've never had any issues with warpage or anything like that. So yeah, it's just, they're, they're real, real reliable and, that color case hardening is one of the few things that I send out and I've just, I've always used them and and had good luck. So I think maybe you had mentioned that before, but what, what either, what is the science or what are the characteristics that, like you said, make uh, the color case hardening on a Fox different than say a Holland and Holland or a Parker? Is it, is it the chemical makeup of it or, or what, what is actually happening there? Well, so the same, the same heat treating process is going on where you're, you're putting a mild steel or an iron action in a um, carburizing environment and heating it up to critical temperature and the outside layer of the metal piece, whatever it is, is at critical temperature will absorb some of that. Um, and it can be carbon. Typically it's carbon monoxide that's given off when you, when you carburize, uh, you know, charcoal typically, um, and so you're, you're basically making a, a skin or a layer on the metal that's higher carbon than the interior. And then that's quenched, uh, typically into water and it, it hardens very hard. So that's that whole, the whole concept of case hardening is you've got an interior that's soft and, and pliable and very tough. Yet there's a, there's basically a skin that's very, very hard and it, it makes an extremely durable surface. And it also it, it makes it real rigid and, and also, you know, durable to torsional forces. But in asking about the colors, we use different materials for charcoal. So things like leather, they'll make char- charcoal out of leather um, and obviously wood and different types of wood. And um, they also make uh, the charcoal out of bone. 
So okay. different, pro- different proportions of those types of charcoal will give you different colors. Like a lot of the American stuff um, tends to have a higher concentration of the bone charcoals and they will give you more of those iridescent kind of pinks and oranges that you'll see on like Fox's or LC Smith's or, you know, certain American guns like that. Whereas the British stuff is normally has got a lot higher uh, concentration of, um, or proportion of wood charcoal. And that's where you get those, those kind of silvers and grays and the, the kind of multi-spectrum blues and maybe a little bit of purple. So yeah, that's, that's the difference there. And the, and the colors themselves just basically come from, uh, they're, 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 it's kind of the very outside layer is, um, it's kind of like temper colors and a carbon layer that are, that are left on when you quench, that are left on the metal when it's quenched. So, so yep. co- like, as far as I understand, I mean, color case hardening and, and really the way that you described it, it's, it obviously has this pleasing aesthetic to it that I think shotgun lovers have come to appreciate over the years but it was also functional it's it's serving a functional purpose is that is that function something that is it still relevant today or because i mean you don't see color case hardening you do see it on modern guns but not all of them but i mean is that still like a a real suitable way of hardening an action versus some other modern method and and it's still used to this day now you know, back when a lot of these guns were made, we did not have the exotics, you know, I should say exotic, but we don't, we don't have the, the boutique and exotic steels that we do now. Sure. So, you know, back turn of the century and a little bit before, um, a lot of actions were made out of really good quality, fine grain wrought iron. And, you know, you'll, you'll still see that today, especially on like British or continental European guns that have the color, that the colors are worn off. You can actually see grain that runs through the action and you can kind of see where it was. You could tell it was a billet at one time and it was forged and they, they smashed the water table down and um, you, know, you, you can kind of see it running through there. But as far as today, you do see, it just depends on the manufacturer and what they use. Like there's, there's a, a case hardening steel that's been around for a long time called 8620. And that's a steel that's specifically made for case hardening. And there are manufacturers that use that. Um, there's also manufacturers now that just use, um, you know, good quality chrome molly steels like 4140 and some of the other ones. Machining technology has changed so much, too, where now with, you know, EDM, wire EDM, you know, some of the machining that can be done with carbide and that sort of thing, manufacturers can do, can, can essentially machine stuff that's pre-hardened. So the the idea that the metal has to be soft and then we do all the work to it and then we harden it afterwards, that's not necessarily applicable anymore. So yeah, it's kind of all over the map. Everybody's a little different. From the restoration aspect, a lot of times I have to anneal actions, you know, when I'm going to work on them because I need to file on them and, and polish on them and cut on them a little bit. So then I have to re-case harden them and that's where, you know, that's where I send stuff out to Turnbull. Yeah. Um, other than other than the case hardening, I do all my own heat treating in shop. I've got in the shop here, I've got two different digitally controlled heat treating ovens, and I'm pretty comfortable working with a lot of different um, types of metal as far as heat treating goes. So, yeah. Last question on case hardening before I move on to some of the other some of the other ones. I mean, certainly, I think color case hardening will always have that sort of aesthetically pleasing, you know, function for people that are into case hardening, which I consider me one of them, but 
let's say one of the things that we talk about, you know, I've got a Fox Sterlingworth in the safe behind me that has, you know, maybe 30 to 40% case colors left on it. And that's something that if you look at a lot of vintage guns, you'll see people mention what the percentage of case coloring is on there. And that's one, I think, to indicate the level of use that the gun has had. But I'm also curious, is there, if you buy a gun that say has 10, 15, 20% case hardening, what should you be thinking about as the owner of that gun if you were considering restoration or, I mean, should you be worried about that action being more vulnerable because the colors are wearing off it or is it going to be more aesthetically driven at that point? It's, it's purely aesthetic. So okay. that like going back to what we were talking about before, the, the hardening process is done and the colors are effectively just a byproduct of that, gotcha. of that heat treating process. So that doesn't go away that it's just that, that surface coloration. And interestingly, like when you do a coin finish or a pewter finish, that's effectively just where you you color you, you case harden a gun and you purposely remove the colors so that the, the 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 colors of the color case get brushed off with some very 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 mild uh, abrasives and it just kind of has that pewtery look. Gotcha. So okay. If the I, I guess if your question was if the colors aren't there, does that relate to the the hardness of the gun and that? That's no, like the, the hardness is there. It's just that the, the residue of the, if that's a good term, the, re, you know, the, yeah the yep. byproduct is gone. So, yeah. Okay, cool. Um, well, we got a couple questions pop up and then I've got some uh, listed here. So well, let's tackle these before they disappear. Um, question from twice barrel. Have you ever been asked to case harden someone's favorite semi-auto? <laughs> um, no, a lot of, a lot of those, <laughs> I don't know if that's a serious question or not. I have I have case hardened um, the slides and frames of some semi-automatic uh, handguns, um, some of the old Colts, um, you know, turn turn of the century Colts like the 1908s and the um, 1903s, and some of those had uh, uh, case hardened parts. So I've I've done some I I haven't done any of that in a long time, but I have done restoration on those. But yeah, semi-autos. The thing too with a lot of semi-autos, again, I don't know, if, I don't know if this is answering this seriously. Is there's a lot of uh, a lot of those receivers are composite, so it's not it's not just one monolithic piece of metal. There's stuff that's kind of swaged in, and um, you know, a lot of times there can be little uh, non-ferrous metal parts that are swaged in. So I guess there's some strange auto loaders that have steel frames that could be color cased. I don't know if you've ever seen a Cosme. I don't um, think so. Yeah, that's that's a very boutique european autoloader and it was one of the first uh semi-automatics that was ever designed and it in their they're they're fine guns they're on the you know on the level of any of the fine handmade guns interesting if anybody wants to look that up they're kind of neat but yeah, yeah. it looks like he, did, he clarified there it is a serious question like an old 1100 yeah i guess you could try um i wouldn't probably recommend it there's a lot Again, when you go to take one of those apart, like you know, on an eleven hundred, the magazine tube is is you know you'd have to get that out of there, and a lot of times those are uh, fine threaded in and then and then locked. But also to the architecture, you know, the the body of an auto loader is really thin, and you know the sidewalls there there's a lot of inside cutouts and stuff, and the more surface area there is there, the more apt you are to have have warpage because if people don't know what the color case hardening process looks like i mean this is going to be a simplification but you literally have this this action packed in a uh, crucible or a, a metal container 
surrounded by charcoal and you pull it out of an oven when it's about 1200 degrees and throw it in a big bucket of water. So there's, and again, that's a simplification, but there's, there's a lot going on there, you know? So, yeah, good question. Good answer. Uh, another good question here. I've seen, I've heard this a lot, um, from Paul Keating. I've heard people criticize guns like a, like a Franke instinct. That's just like, I've heard people say that it's chemical color or it's just color it's not real case hardening can you talk about that a little bit dale yeah so so there are ways to to put a um case holder case color looking finish on a gun um using flame and there's a technique where you can like coat the exterior of the action with oil and brush it with a oxyacetylene tip and uh, you know that's kind of it's not true color case hardening i mean whether or not somebody likes the way that looks. I mean, I think that's kind of a a personal thing. There's also, um, a a couple other kind of esoteric forms of case hardening. There's potassium cyanide hardening, um, where parts are heated up and, uh, and put into a solution of, uh, potassium cyanide. And that has kind of a distinct look to it too. That's similar to color case hardening. So, um, to add to Paul's question, would it be, because we talked about, you know, color case hardening in the traditional sense was functional and it was the, it sounds like, I mean, the aesthetics of it were really just like, that just came because of the function. And now yeah, people yeah. have an appreciate appreciation of the aesthetic. Yep. So would it be safe to assume, and I don't want to single out Franke or anything, but would it be safe to assume that a company today that is manufacturing a gun and then they're adding an aesthetic coloring to it. Would it be safe to assume that that steel is probably already hardened in some other way where it didn't need it, or we couldn't say that entirely? Or I, I couldn't say that because okay. you know I don't know what the manufacturing technique. They may very well make those out of a case hardening uh, a steel that's designed to be case hardened, and they're case hardened. I, I don't know, and okay. I mean it would probably wouldn't be that difficult to get online and figure it out, um, but. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't say for sure on that because I'm not. I have I haven't researched the manufacturing technique used there. Gotcha. So. All right, um, all right. So just a reminder, folks, please uh, drop your questions in the comments below. We've got a few that were sent in prior to us going live. So I'm going to start up here. This is a question from this Aberlin147. He sent us a bunch of them, so thank you for that. We'll uh, we'll definitely get to as many of these as we can. His first question is difference in grip options. Does it have to do with personal preference? Is it based on fit or is it based on type of hunting? So I guess what considerations are you looking for when you're putting a specific type of grip on, say, a restocking project or something like that? It's really, with one caveat, it's really just personal preference. Okay. Um, but the one thing I will say is some grip combinations, you have to be careful around single triggers. So... The way single tr- triggers function in a lot of different ways. Some of them have, some of them are purely mechanics, some mechanical. Some of them have a mechanical disconnect. Some of them are inertia driven, and they really all revolve around the fact that you actually pull the trigger three times on a single trigger. It's, it's referred to as the inadvertent second pull. And if you've got a single trigger gun that has a really swept back grip, or it has a straight grip they can work fine, but you're, you're going to be, uh, very length of pull sensitive. So effectively on a straight grip gun, if you're overextending your hand or underextending your hand on the grip, it, it can kind of, uh, ball up the function of the single, single trigger. So 
that's really the only thing I can say about a real concern other than personal preference. And again, also in that same line, if you have a, you'll see this sometimes with some Bavarian style guns or some Italian guns where they, it's a double triggered gun, but it has a very severe pistol grip. And again, there, you know, the idea with a double trigger is your length of pull set up properly and effectively you pull the first trigger and your finger can just kind of slide right back to that second trigger. It's mm-hmm. almost should be unconscious. Like you shouldn't have to be consciously thinking I need to move my trigger, my finger back to the other trigger. It should just be there. And if, if you've got a real tight pistol grip or too tight of a pistol grip, it can, you know, essentially compress your hand forward. And then you don't have that natural, essentially like switch or pull back from the front to the rear trigger. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and like I said, it, as far as after that, it's just aesthetics. It's just, you know, what is more comfortable to you as a person? I guess there's a couple considerations too in doing custom jobs where, especially with some of the American guns that were stocked real low, the, the tangs are low. So if I do one of these custom Fox upgrades that I do, some of them, if the guy wants a straight grip and it had a pistol grip, I have to either, we have to either find a different gun or I have to bend the tangs up and change a bunch of the architecture. Yeah. Um, there to, to convert from a pistol to a to a straight grip. But cool. some people prefer, I, I, I will say that, you know, if you're walking for long periods of time, carrying your gun in a somewhat of a ready position, a lot of people find the straight grip more comfortable for that. Yeah, it's, it's um, pretty relaxed, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I personally like a kind of, I, I'm personally like right in the middle, like I really like the classic Prince of Wales I like a little bit of a pistol grip, but I, I like it more open so I can move my hand around. And um, I like continuity in my guns, too. So I, I want something that's going to be comfortable for a single trigger or a double trigger. So, yeah, there's that. Cool. Um, we, had a, we had a good question here pop in from Dex the GSP. He says, I have a 12-gauge side-by-side. I'm going to assume he's saying Parker that has a loose fitting tab on top of the barrel that seems worn as the barrel connects with the receiver. Is it worth fixing or leave it as a wall hanger? I guess, is that clear enough for you, Dale? I don't know what he means by loose fitting tab. Yeah, on top of the barrel. I wonder, is that is he talking about that rib extension, that doll's head rib extension on a Parker? It, 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 yeah, that might be what he's talking about. And that's, yeah, if there's, if there's a loose rib, um, you don't want to continue to use the gun and strip, stripping and relaying ribs is very, that's a, that's a very time consuming, costly process. You know, you're getting, you're getting at or around $2,000 or more for that process. So it, it is costly. So that might, you know, put him in the land where it's a wall hanger yeah. or if it's, if it's a graded gun and it's, you know, worth a lot of money or it's got some type of, uh, you know, family heirloom type appeal, then maybe he would he would want to have it done sure so, yeah, but yeah so it's a cost if you've benefit. got a, if you yeah if you've got a gun that's got a, a a rib that's visibly loose um yeah you don't want to shoot that because it will continue to to typically the ribs can will, will get worse and then eventually one gets loose and maybe it falls off or the other thing too is those ribs are typically they're compression formed and if you twist one of them or bend them it's nearly impossible to ever get them back to their original shape yeah so you want you want to avoid tweaking ribs if you can 
Here's a familiar familiar topic, Dell, uh, from earlier this week. Um, this isn't really a question, but it's a comment. He says he converted his Ithaca 37 to a straight grip for that reason. His chunky fingers were bound up, so he changed the grip. But I know we were talking yeah. about Ithaca 37s earlier this week. Yeah, that's that's fun. Yeah, I, I like. I, we were we were talking about the idea of bespoke pump guns, and and it's. I think I'm going to do one just for the fun of it. Um, I built a couple. I built a couple of them in the past, and they actually end up being really nice. I, I like, as we talked about, I like the 37s because they have a very streamlined, tubular look to them. Um, they're not very deep. They're not very wide. Fun guns, and and the thing is too, like I, I, it's not in the typical vein of what I work on, but there's there's two guns that are really quintessentially kind of american centric and americana and that's pump guns and lever guns yeah you know and 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 i actually one of my personal uh kind of things is i really like vintage classic vintage uh lever actions specifically winchester so you know i i I have a 70 an original long tank 71 that i uh that i uh, refinished and um restored to factory original condition i've got a 94 model winchester model 94 model 64 that was kind of the, the quote unquote, you know, Michigan deer hunter special. Yeah. Um, and, and I enjoy, you know, hunting with those vintage guns. It's, you know, cause a lot of the hunting, I, I deer hunt a little bit here and a lot of it's very close range. It's big woods hunting. And, uh, you know, I love using those old open sight guns and, and having fun. But again, back to the, back to the pump gun things thing. It's, it is very classic American Americana and it's, they're kind of neat, you know, they're, they're fun. It's not something that everybody does. They're inexpensive. So people can fool around with them without breaking the bank. And yeah, it's just kind of, I saw that, that, uh, bespoke pump gun, uh, um, uh, on your April fool's yep. magazine cover spoof. And I thought that was just, it made me laugh. Cause like I said, I've done a couple, three of those over the years and it's, it's kind of fun. So, yep. <laughs> Uh, all right. Next question here is from Upland Tradition. He's he's asking, he's inquiring about cleaning and storage recommendations when putting guns up for the off season. You know, the real key is just keep them dry. And it, it, think of them almost like a musical instrument. You know, you don't want a lot of humidity variation. You don't want a ton of temperature variation. Um, as far as just what the average person is going to do, clean the bore out good, wipe wipe the exterior down with a good rust preventative there we go i don't know did i lose you there at all no i well i had a i had a call come through which i didn't think was possible i'll put this on do not disturb yeah lps3 is good that's that's a that's a rust preventative um yeah just warm and dry you know and also if you're doing your proper rotation of the full the full strip and cleans again that's that's a good time, you know, right at the end of the season to, to get that done. So, yeah, I don't really know what else to say as far as just – and that's that's part of a, just a good, you know, gun maintenance regimen right down to every time after you hunt it. You know, like we talked about before, clean the checkering out, clean the bore out, yeah. get any – you know, you know, be it a side-by-side or over and under an auto gun, try to – auto-loading gun, try to get as much – of any type of foreign debris that you've collected out of the gun, out from underneath the extractors, and and get it dried off. Really, the worst damage I see typically to guns is when they're put away wet. That's, I mean, when somebody has a horror story, it's always, oh, I was just, you know, I didn't think it was that damp out, and I slipped my gun, 
in my gun locker in my truck or I put it in my sheepskin case and came back four days later and it was covered with fine rust, Yeah, you know? And yeah, so that, yeah, just kind of keep them high and dry is, is a good, good way to go there. All right. Another question we had submitted was, um, this actually almost, it kind of leads into what you were just saying, but opinion on keeping top lever lock and ejectors in as smooth of operation as possible, which I guess we could naturally assume that we want those things running as smooth as possible. You talked about the ejectors, but anything that you do in particular to make sure that your lever and ejectors are properly functioning to the best they can? You know, um, good, good, you know, if the gun hasn't been sent in and cleaned, you want to have that done because there's a lot of internal lubrication and fitting and stuff that, you know, you just you can't do unless you completely disassemble the gun. You know, as far as what you can do in the field or at home, um, again, every action is going to be a little bit different. But, you know, look in the recesses where the lumps go of your side by side or look down into the receiver of your over and under get a soft bristled toothbrush or some, you know, inexpensive, like, you know, tin handled acid brushes, just get, get all that grime and junk out of there. Um, and then again, look under, look underneath your ejectors. And that's a pretty, pretty simple thing to do. Let me see here. Hold on. Yep. We're live in the shop. So feel free to grab stuff. So I'm trying to think of what this is. This is a set of purdy barrels here and I'm trying to see, so you can, I don't know if you see, I just physically, you know, the ejectors go in and out. I just push those up and then you want to look underneath there because if stuff gets trapped under there and there's typically lubrication, which you can see on this, if you build stuff up underneath there, when those, when those go down, they're not going in all the way. So they can put a lot of excess pressure on the breech face. Gotcha. Um, You know, and if you're mechanically, one of the few things that I will occasionally recommend clients do if they're mechanically apt is to get a decent screwdriver blade ground and you can see most most of these guns the the uh the ejectors are held in by that little screw so you can just take that out pull the ejectors right out okay and and get in there with a q-tip and clean that all out i when i do a full sonic strip and clean on these guns i will pull that out brush everything down and actually use some some brake cleaner and just spray it all off get everything out and then um let the brake cleaner evaporate and then and then coat it with uh you know coat it with uh, a good rust preventative and put some lubrication how is in there. that how is that screw holding the ejectors in there is there something that the screw fits into it's not pressure is it it's it's mechanical here i can just pop these out so that goes down through the lump if you can see there's there's a corresponding little cutout in those okay yep that's milled in so that screw sits on top sits goes down in there and then it goes back and forth like that gotcha okay so that was something that was something new i learned today (laughs) yeah and then i'm trying to think if i've got a set of over and unders are actually are actually worse that they tend because the especially the top barrel if you kind of look at how it sits when you open it it's kind of out in the open a little more and I'm just going to, I think I've got a set of over and under barrels here someplace. Hold on a second. I've got to go back in the safe here. And... <laughs> Your wireless earbuds are good because we can still hear you. So, That's, Yeah, they're not bad. Okay, here we go. So this is my old, one of my old target guns. It's an old Browning. The first gen 
Brownie Lightning Sporting Clays guns, which you can see. So here's here's the breech on a set of uh, these over and unders, and yep. you know you just mechanically push those out yep. with your hand, and then get get in there underneath there with you know like I said a little acid brush or Q-tips or whatever it takes, and clean that out um, as best you can. Yeah, that that's really, and then like anything else, you know, look around in here, you know, wipe any foreign material on your any of your bearing surfaces like this is where the hinge pin goes you know brownings have a hinge pin rather than trunnions but you know same difference get get the gunk out of the bites and then again when i was saying look down in the action you know you can see there's this is just a standard over and under but there's a lot of nooks and crannies in there yeah you know get it get in there with that toothbrush and get all that stuff out of there is there do you yep. use do you use grease or any kind of specialized lubricant on like where the hinge pin is or those bearing surfaces? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think I told you too. I'm there's there's a few products I'm thinking about marketing and selling here sometime in the near future because there's there's good quality lubricants out there and but a lot of them aren't specifically designed for vintage guns and there there's some kind of in, in hinge guns specifically. You need the grease to be sticky enough to stay on the surface, but it needs to be so it's got to have a, a a real high kind of like tack factor, but mm-hmm. it can't be super thick. But anyway, you know that said, there's just there there are good commercially available products. You know, Pro Gold, Stotts, um, you know any of those. I mean, they might not be as good as the stuff I'm thinking about bringing out, but they're very adequate. And for your hinge pin, those high bearing areas. You want to use a grease that's that'll stay put, you know, that's tacky, that's an actual grease. Now, when you get into areas that are more um, that that have a, a tighter fit tolerance, like your extractors, um, or in and around the top of the hinge pin, that's where you would use like a lighter a lighter oil, like maybe a rem oil or you know any any of those other commercially yeah. available ones. The thing about the oil is you really want to be careful with is don't overdo it. Like, because if you flood your action with oil, that oil will end up in the, you know, typically in the, in the wood eventually. So, you know, very, very, very small quantities. And then, and then too, like anything you're, you're actually applying your lubricant is actually kind of a cleaning process because you should be putting your lubricants on. And then when you put the gun away, wiping most of them off, you know, you know, wiping down the hook area, wiping down the lumps, cleaning out the action so you're kind of taking all that foreign matter and debris out of there and then put the reapply the lubricant and um yep. it's just it's kind of part of a, a good system so all right next question is from at spent cartridge this is one of my buddies uh, mark i believe he's he's down in the southeast i can't remember exactly where but he wants to know is bending a stock to get the right amount of cast a good idea or a bad idea i have a feeling that your answer is going to start with it depends <laughs> it well, it does, and, and um, you know, stock bending is just one of the various methods we use to get a gun to fit. Yeah. And sometimes it's doable, and sometimes it's not. Some sometimes it's low risk. Sometimes it's very high risk. I mean, ideally, you'd, you'd come to my place. I'd give you a gun fitting, and we'd make you a brand new stock from scratch that has you know nails every single one of the dimensions, and down the road you go. Not everybody has, you know. Not every gun merits that. Not every client has that type of money or or wants to spend that kind of money. So gun fitting is just kind of, or excuse me, stock bending is just kind of one of many ways to get from here to there, you know. Yeah. I mean, and as far as whether or not it's a good idea, it's, you know, we talked about this before is, is, you know, that's part of that feasibility study that I talk about where, 
we get a set of working dimensions, I measure your gun, and then we just say, okay, what are our options? How, how do we get from point A to point B? You know, and, and that's really where it tells us, is it a good idea or not? Yeah. So, And there are some other things around bending that I know just from talking to you that, you know, if you're talking about, Mark specifically mentioned cast, so he's talking about bending a stock left or right, but there's also you could talk about removing or adding drop, bending the stock up and down. And from talking to you, you know, cast is something that is definitely something that comes up off. And that's something that is usually feasible to some degree. But when you get into talking about changing the height of the comb or something like that, that can be a lot tougher on, on certain stocks. Yeah. Certain guns, um, specifically like over and under through bolt guns, which most all over and unders are. Yeah. They do not care for being bent for drop up or down yeah so if if possible you know you hope it's a little high and we can shape it down um sometimes i can do some things with altering the inletting and then um there if if you need less drop there's always uh you know adjustable combs there's a there's a lot of different ways but um yeah certain it's kind of a case-by-case basis but um and, and people think it's it's more of an invasive process than you think i mean People use a lot of different methods. Predominantly, it's done with heat lamps. Heat lamps is one method. I use the hot oil method, and yeah, it's it's invasive. It's risky. You're you're pouring three hundred something degree oil over the wrist. It's it's very similar to like bending a table skirt. You know, you're you're heating the wood up to the point where it's pliable, and then pushing on it. So, like color case hardening, it's kind of you know the the actuality of what's going on is a little it's a little more invasive than what people think. You know. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. But. All right, another question here. This is from Wandering Canadian ninety three. He asks, "What are some affordable side by sides for someone just getting into gun collecting?" So broad question, but uh, what are some thoughts? Well, I, I guess I, I, I don't know if he can clarify or not, but you know, he said collecting, right? Um, so I don't know if he wants to start being a collector because you know the gun collecting is an activity that's you know, com- can be completely um, opposed to using them at all. Correct. You know, yeah. so let's assume for the sake of this, because I had that same thought. Let's assume that he's talking about and if and if we're wrong, he can let us know. But let's assume he wants to know what are some affordable side by sides for use in the field? You know, so taking into mind some of the different differences and dimensions of those vintage guns. Yeah, you know, I mean, if, if if he wanted to go vintage, I mean, I you always come back to the Fox Sterlingworths, some of the lower grade, you know, Parkers. As we talked about before, we might, you know, due to the age of some of the people that were collecting and owning a lot of these guns, we might see some prices come down a little bit. Yeah. Um, and that's on the American side. And again, we talked about this before, but Continental guns right now, uh, especially like the Merkels and some of the, the lesser known German and Belgian makers, you can... Those guns are really good values. 12 gauges specifically kind of are out of fashion right now yeah. in a lot of those circles. So you can get a good, uh, you know, 28 or 26 inch barrel 12 gauge Continental gun for, you know, well under $2,000 in a lot of cases. And the thing is, too, a lot of those guns, their 12 gauges were always designed with lighter loads in mind or typically were. So their, their 12 gauges weigh more you know, like our heavy 20 gauges would weigh. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's not uncommon to get a continental 12 gauge that weighs approaching six pounds. Yeah. Then again, too, there's always, you know, I don't, I don't know what his price point is. There's a lot of the, um, the British, the Webley and Scots, because kind of some of the off, 
off-brand, or I should say lesser-known maker, um, Birmingham box locks. Those those can be had really interesting, or excuse me, really, really inexpensively. Yeah. So Cool. All right. Another question here. This is most important aspect of a shotgun when determining the best option for you. So what's the number one priority? I'm not sure how to answer that. <laughs> and I guess we could consider, you know, again, this is the Project Upland podcast. They're submitting questions. I think um, Aberlin147 is watching, or he was, so he could he could clarify. But you could assume that if he wants a gun that he's going to hunt with, shoot well and hunt with, what would be some of the top priorities you should be considering when looking at a shotgun? Well, I, I think the number one thing, you know, and, and I talk to a lot of people about, you know, deciding what they, you know, which gun to get. And the, the first thing to consider is really how many guns are you probably going to have in your day-to-day arsenal, That's right? So so if, if you hop in your truck and you're going on a five-day bird hunt, I mean, are you going to want a gun that you can shoot grouse with one day and then drive a little further west and shoot sharp tails? Um, are you that, that, you know, one gun kind of guy, or are you somebody who's going to have three or four, you know, and going to, you know, the Woodcock flights are in, so I'm going to grab my 410 or my 28. And I ended up in North Dakota hunting pheasants and I want my, you know, seven and a half pound 12 gauge. So, so deciding that is kind of where I would start. Again, you kind of get into some real vague things because, you know, if it was, if we're strictly looking from a performance standpoint, we'd probably all be shooting, modern over and unders and you know semi-automatic guns yeah so so yeah so then then you just got to kind of ask yourself some other questions as far as you know do i want something you know what's important to me is having a gun that's a vintage gun and has some history is that important or are you a person that that is just strictly looking at for you know at performance sure um what's your price point you know they're there i mean you know, if your price point is five hundred dollars, you're in a lot different situation than you would be if your price point is two thousand dollars or five thousand dollars. Yeah, that can open know. and close a lot of avenues. Yep, but but I, again, I think you know when when you kind of figure out what are the possible species and hunting methods you're going to use, that helps a lot. And then, do I want this to be a gun that's pretty good at everything? but not great at any one thing? Or do I want this, you know, I have a series of guns, have say three shotguns and have each one kind of a specific niche, you know, that, that really helps get you pointed in the right direction. Cool. So, so we got some more questions. We're approaching our one hour cutoff here. So we're getting near the end. So if we end abruptly or go over or something, uh, listeners know that, but this we'll make this available as a, as a podcast after the fact. Another question here. Do you have a favorite gauge, Dale? (laughs) Well, I like, I've long been a fan for most of my upland hunting of the 28 gauge. Yeah. And that's just because I like shooting light guns and I, sh- I shoot light guns pretty well. And my 28 gauges are all fairly modern guns. So with modern loading out of a 28, I can shoot anything from a three quarter to an ounce right now. Yeah. Of course, I think Benelli brought out that three inch thing that shoots an ounce in a 16th. But, but anyway, and I've got, uh, I've got two over and under 28s and I got an auto loader and the auto loader I shoot is four pounds. I think it's four pounds, 14 ounces unloaded. And I mean, <laughs> it's snappy. Yeah. Now, now, now the caveat is not everybody shoots light guns. Well, sure. And there are, there are certain situations where you don't want a light gun. I, I also, one of my 28s is a, is a gun that my folks bought me when I was a kid, uh, just kind of on a whim. Yeah, at the old Burger Brothers in Minneapolis, 
I don't know, you may or may not have ever been in there when I was I don't was know open. if I have. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of like, I don't know, it was uh, almost kind of like a like a Dick's Sporting Goods kind of okay, deal. Okay. They, they, like, like a Cabela's, like a small Cabela's store, but... But yeah, and it was just a um, Browning Satori Lightning Hunter, uh, twenty-six inch barrels, and uh, I've had that gun for a long time. I I have fooled around with the gun fit off and on for like ten years on it, and I finally um, going to you know going down quail hunting this winter. I finally got the gun fit nailed on that, and I'm really comfortable with where that's shooting. But I like I like the twenty-eight gauge. I got a I got a four ten auto loader that I. A real expensive one that I or inexpensive one that I bought just to see if I would like to hunt with a 410 strictly for woodcock basically and and I had a blast I'm definitely that that's a lot of fun I'm not taking that out and using it to try to hunt grouse or pheasants but you know certain areas here where the, when the woodcock flights come in and you know you're going to get 20 or 30 flushes in a morning having that little 410 is a blast yeah so that that's kind of where I live obviously I have I've got you know, 16 gauge and I've got several 12s, but nine times out of 10, if I'm in the woods, I'm reaching for one of my 28s. Yeah. So cool. All right. couple more here. What is the most common, what is most commonly overcomplicated by hunters with their shotguns? Overcomplicated. I think people really get wrapped up in barrel length. And I think that's kind of, I think that's kind of silly because really barrel length I can never remember in my whole life missing a bird because the last two inches of my barrel caught in a branch. I, I really can't. And I'm not saying that euphemistically. I just, I never have. And it's something people will go on about endlessly. Yeah. And I just, I'm like, you know, if, if the gun balances well, who cares if it's got 28 or 26 inch barrels or 30 inch barrels? You know, that little, back to that little 28 gauge, that gun weighs that I was just talking about. It, it's more, it weighs more in the genre of a 20 gauge than it does a 28 it's got 26 inch tubes but it swings great because all the weights between your hands it's very well balanced and i don't i don't notice i'm trying to think things that guys get i when <laughs> when guys uh will like get really weird about different shot sizes yeah. like you know i'll go hunting i've got one guy I go hunting with who will go to a different cover and it's you know like there's more leaves there so he pulls his sixes out and puts his eights away <laughs> I'm like, you know, <laughs> we're shooting grouse at 25 yards here. You know, yeah. this is not, you know, but, but every, you know, everybody has their thing and, and yeah. it, it, it is kind of fun to see the different quirks that people have. And yeah, yeah I, the so. barrel thing is, I think that's a good one. And like the, I mean, the perspective that you can give on like the balance of the gun and how, how important that is, because that's one of those things that people can go on and on about. And I've seen it just in, you know, my exposure to the upland world and the, or the shotgun world. And just like looking at guns, like shorter barrels used to be in vogue right now. It's all about long barrels. You know, everybody yeah. wants 28s or more and that middle ground there, that 26 and 28 inch, you'll get people debating over those things. And I'm sure I've participated myself, but we're talking about two inches at, at that point, And it's like, how big of a difference is it really going to make? Yeah. Well, and so, and, and again, so much has changed with manufacturing, you know, not, not to go on and on about this specifically, but barrels can weigh less because we have better material, right? you know, and, and actions weigh less because we, we can make them out of these really exotic, you know, alloys now. And it used to be that longer barrels almost ubiquitously meant the gun was going to be more muzzle heavy. Sure. And that's not necessarily so anymore, yep. you know, and that's where like, I, you know, when people 
talk about that. It's just, you know, what is the overall weight of the gun? And let's put it on my, I have a little, little like teeter totter gauge to find out where the balance point is, you know, and that, that tells you the truth of that tale. Yeah. So, yeah. Case in point, I think Caesar Greeny, one of the things that they rolled out when I was uh, visiting with them earlier this year was they came out with a set of 34 inch barrels that I think made that particular model of gun even lighter than their 32 inch barreled gun. So, yeah. And, and a lot of those target guns too, especially if you're shooting like VTAS courses or a lot of these long sporting clays courses, yeah. um, having all that weight out at the end does give a lot of, you know, follow through to your swing. And it also kind of takes the bobbles out of your gun mount. Um, it's just, you just got a little more inertia out at the end there. Yeah. So Cool. Well, I, my timer is low here. So in, in the, in an attempt to prevent us getting abruptly cut off, I think we'll call it quits here. Dell, where can people go to learn more about you, get in touch with you and uh, inquire about your services if they so choose? Yeah, you can, I'm on Instagram, Instagram at upland underscore gunsmith. I'm on Facebook at just DC Whitman custom gunsmithing. And uh, you can get a hold of me through both of those. And my, my email's uh, dwhitman at centurytel.net. All right, man. Thank you very much for coming on and answering folks' questions. If people want to see Dell and Upland Gunsmith on Instagram Live again, definitely let us know, and uh, we'll make it happen. Okay, sounds good. All right, see you, buddy. Yep, thanks. Bye. All right, that does it for this episode of the Project Upland Podcast. Thank you for listening, everybody. A quick reminder that the podcast is brought to you by Onyx Hunt, Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food, CZ USA, and Dakota 283 Kennels. Don't forget to leave us a rating, leave us a review, subscribe to the podcast, and share the podcast for your chance to win the Project Upland Podcast giveaway. And head over to projectupland.com for more of the Upland Birds, Dogs, guns and gear that you love until we see you back here for the next episode of the project upland podcast onyx hunt is the number one hunting gps app join millions of other hunters who trust onyx hunt to find more game discover new access and hunt smarter onyx hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.